Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. صباح الخير good morning dear listeners you're listening to radio 3CR on 855 AM and Palestine remembered with Robert Martin Nasser Mashni and Yusuf Ahmed Rimawi Thank you for tuning in to another edition of Australia's only radio program that is totally dedicated to the Palestinian cause in English language. We would like to la- uh, to welcome our listeners on the AM dial and those who will join us later on 3cr.org.au forward slash podcasts. In this week's episode, we will be listening to uh, two interviews. The first one by, uh, recorded by Robert Martin in Palestine with Norit Pellet about uh, the propaganda and ideology and hate in uh, Israeli school, uh, school books and curricula. And also um, Nasser spoke with uh, another Israeli, Gideon Levy from Haaretz. So stay with us and enjoy the episode. Good morning, Robert and Nasser. Hi, Yusuf. Good morning, Nasser. Good morning, Yusuf. Now, we have two items on our plate uh, this week. We have um, an interview, uh, Robert, which you will talk to us about. Uh, you recorded during your visit uh, to Palestine a few weeks ago. I did. And also, we have another interview that our other correspondent uh, recorded uh, last uh, few or in the last few days. So, uh, let's start with Robert. Tell us about what we are going to hear in a few seconds. So Nurit Pellard is a professor and she did a study on the education system. Mm. Now, I believe a lot of people don't believe what's going on. The education system of the Israeli education system. This is the education system that's taught to young Jewish children. In fact, from the age of three upwards is what we discussed. Mm. Mm. Um, I, I believe a lot of the world doesn't click with what's going on over there because it's so absurd. And part of what I asked her, I pretty pretty blatantly just asked whether or not the Israeli education system is racist, mm-hmm. and she said yes. And there's a bit that I actually just will mention. So when you hear it, you'll go, oh, my goodness. She said if there was a racist manual written, the Israeli education system has followed it to a T. Wow. And I was shocked, the fact that she said this, but also when she uses some of the different um, examples. Mm. But... A few days before that, I had been walking around, and I will play some of the audio because I was asking the Israeli Jews what they thought of the Palestinians. Mm. And some of what I heard was horrifically filthy, Mm. horrible language. And I sort of understand now why, because from the age of three, they are taught taught to to hate, hate, to fear, and that if things don't change or they aren't protecting themselves from the entire world, not just the Palestinians, that the Holocaust will come again. 
Yeah, I mean, what we should, yeah. use, uh, Rob, you didn't mention was Nurit's Miko Pallad's sister. Yes. She's a professor, professor. Of, of education. Mm. And, and her own daughter, violation. her own daughter was. Um, 13 year old was 13, killed. 13 year old was killed by a suicide bomber in, in the Second Intifada. Now, I mean, if anybody. And nevertheless, she chose not to blame uh, the victim. Correct. And she to wants to look at the root cause. The cause of that. Uh, yep. and, and this is someone that's obviously grown up and lived in it. So Miko's book obviously was The General Son. So they, they were brought up in a very, very Zionist, Zionist family. Yeah. And so they understand it from the inside out. So uh, we are going to listen to an interview or maybe part one, I would say. It's part one. Part one. Maybe of, four. Of the interview that Robert Martin uh, recorded with uh, Nurit uh, Peled El Hanan author of the book Palestine in Israeli School Books, Ideology and Propaganda in Education. Stay with us and we will be back shortly. My name is Robert and I'm in Palestine and I'm honoured to be sitting here with Nurit Peled. And I have a book here that everyone read. And I was hoping that you might be able to tell us maybe how you came up with the idea of studying it or I think it maybe it just happened but also I continually hear that the Palestinians teach hate and the Israelis teach peace. Not really. <laughs> so tell me, tell me about uh, your book and your study. First of all, the Palestinians don't teach hate. So that's something that we don't hear. We, we don't hear about that. You don't hear about that. No. In East Jerusalem, uh, they still study the Palestinian uh, curriculum, but it is controlled by Israel, so... Um, um, they get a book where half the pages are blank because they are erased, deleted. And yeah, uh, they cannot teach anything about themselves. They can teach, I think, Islam until the 17th century, but nothing that has to do with nationality and with, with today. You see? They cannot teach about the refugees. They cannot teach about the Nakba. And I'm talking about the Palestinian Authority, not in Israel. In Israel, the Palestinian students uh, study the same curriculum as the Jews, translated to Arabic. Wow, so that's... So they learn about the Zionist project and the redemption of the land and the wonderful uh, project of settlement and occupation and this and that. They have maybe... Uh, just yesterday, a student of mine told her, me that she saw her niece's books and they have about two pages about Palestinian uh, history and culture. Nothing. They don't know Mahmoud Darwish. You see, but they do know Israeli poets. National, uh, what they call national poets. So they're not, they're not even allowed to learn about their own things? Oh, no, no, no. Culture, no, they don't. Okay. They don't. I have a course uh, where we teach um, Arab teachers of Hebrew. Yep. And Many of them tell me, so what I do, I mean, there's no program for teaching that. I teach tr translation theory. So we took, you know, articles and we took uh, works and uh, so on. And the students say, and the students are all teachers, and they say it's the first time I read Mahmoud Awish. It's the first time I read uh, this and that. So that's incredible. Yeah. I mean, that's One of them it. told me, I thought it was uh, the, the songs of Masel Khalifa. I didn't even know. You know. So that's sad. So you can't even learn about yourself. And uh, so they, they don't learn anything about themselves. Of course, they cannot say anything bad about Israel. And um, so this is slander. 
of course, outside the ministry, you have all kinds of groups that uh, publish all kinds of books, just like here, you know, you know about these rabbis who uh, who published books that say you can rape enemy women and you should kill enemy babies. And these books are given to soldiers. They were given to soldiers just before they entered Gaza. So, say, that, say that again, because that's really important. So, so they're given There are rabbis books. in Israel who wrote a few books, one called The, the King's Road, and the other, I don't remember, where they say it's, according to Jewish halacha, you can rape enemy women and you can kill enemy babies. And this book, uh, there was a trial and the rabbi, he didn't get to jail, but you know, something. And um, he's free now and he still teaches. And, uh, and he's a rabbi. Not only one, I mean a few. And their books were distributed to soldiers before getting into Gaza. You, you, I mean, uh, but your... this is not the Ministry of Education, so you not. cannot see these are textbooks. Yeah, you know, everyone can publish whatever they want, but but it's well known. But they are not punished. These people. This is what I'm, I'm saying. What if it was a Palestinian doing or, that sort of thing? Or, they, are, they are punished for something they write on Facebook, or and you know they're in Tatur and uh, yeah. these stories. So they really cannot. They cannot even if they want to. Um, whenever you have the stamp of the Palestinian Ministry of Education, it is heavily censored. Mm. I don't think they want to teach hate. I mean, this is another point for them. <laughs> you see, you teach hate and you teach racism when you want to dehumanize people in order to control them, right? Or eliminate them or exterminate them. You don't do it when you want to be liberated. Yeah. It's, it's, it's not useful. Okay. Yeah, so, so talking about that, the study that you did on the Palestine and Israeli school books. Yeah. And I think also the ideology and propaganda in education is a huge thing. This so, is not my idea. This is the, <laughs> the publisher's. Yeah, no, but it, but it, it stands out of what it is. Yeah. So tell, yeah. tell, tell us about the, um, the study that you did. Because I think people need to realise that you're a professor. Yeah. You're highly educated. <laughs> and this isn't something that you just decided to do. It's something that sort of evolved. Is that yes, right? Yes, yeah. Well, yeah. When I started my academic career, I wanted to study the whole, all the aspects of educational discourse. Language development in school, writing development, um, classroom dialogue, uh, multiculturalism, racism, and so on. I went yeah. from one to another. And then when I got to the racism, you know, I learned it racism in class because racism in Israel is, uh, I mean, Israeli discourse is a racist discourse, not only towards Palestinians, but towards Jewish minorities as well. So I studied that. And then I wanted to see how the books use scientific discourse in order to convey ideologies there's a lot of study about that other places and I started and then I saw that the, the way they present Palestinians is, is the main issue um, so you know so I did that and that's how this book came about and, and, tell I, us, and tell us about the book and the study what did you find well I find that uh, the books if there was a racist manual to write books they follow it by the letter. Okay? Wow. All the categories of wow. racist discourse are there, both visual and verbal, and rhetorical, the rhetoric. You see, because other people who study Israeli wow. school books do content analysis, and when you do content analysis, you don't study the rhetoric. So, for example, there was a big uh, 
discussion about whether Israeli school books mention the Nakba or not. Because uh, in an Israeli school book translated to Arabic, uh, it was not allowed to say the word Nakba or the Green Line or whatever. But they do. They do mention the Nakba. But what do they say about the Nakba? They say it was for the best. So they justify it? They legitimate it. A posteriori, you see, by the consequences. And uh, so content analysis is not enough. Say if you, you know, Nakba or not Nakba. Yes, there is the Nakba. But by the end of the chapter, they say that the Nakba enabled us to... uh, uh, to create a Jewish state with a Jewish majority. And this was a miracle. This was the best thing we can do. A miracle. So they don't say how jolly they died, but the consequences mm. legitimate it. Okay? Yeah. We call it consequential explanation in semiotics. Okay. okay. You take the consequences and you make them into cause. That's very powerful too. It Especially is. when people are it susceptible yeah. to... Yeah. You have it in many places in Australia. Of course. Yeah. All those uh, colonialist places and, and other places, yeah. Yeah. So it's in use. And um, now racism, first of all, Palestinians are never shown as normal human beings. And in Israel you have hundreds of books because it's private industry. Only as terrorists, primitive farmers and refugees... Hordes of refugees that are, you know, threatening. <laughs> wow. So that's what they... And uh, you don't see a teacher, a doctor, a dancer, a real estate man, a, I don't know, merchant, whatever. They are always defined as a problem, a Palestinian problem, like the Jewish problem. You know, defining people as problem is... And this is throughout racist. all of the books, whether the it's books. geography, all the books. whether it's English, Hebrew, Everything. whatever it is. Everything, yeah. They wow. are the minority, they are the problem, a demographic problem, a developmental program, because they don't want to develop, they don't want to modernize. Have they no idea, the Palestinians? That's just so opposite. Uh, yeah, and, uh, uh, and a security threat, of course. So they are a problem, they are the enemy, uh, and that's what the children know. I mean, they don't know anything else because they never meet Palestinians. In maps... You don't have Palestinian cities in, in, in even inside Israel. You can have a map of Palestinian population inside Israel, and you don't have Nazareth, Acre, or Umm Fahim there. It's just taken out. It's taken out, and the the impression is that they live on us, upon us. You see, so the impression is very threatening. Universities in Israel, for example, there's a map. So you have this tiniest extension of a university in the Jewish colonies in Palestine, but you don't have any major Palestinian university. Or a a map of Jerusalem where they show you cultural, governmental, and administrative uh, sites. They show you the um, uh, eastern part of the city, empty, except for... Just empty? Empty, except for the Wailing Wall or something, you see. So there's nothing. The, the idea is to promote the idea that they don't exist, which is also in, you know, in uh, Israeli general life. They don't exist. They're not part of the economy. They're not part of the culture. When you say, for example, Israeli theater, you don't think about the Arab-Israeli theaters. No. Or Israeli uh, cinema. Although Israeli-Palestinian cinema is one of the best in the world, you never hear about that. 
or Israeli literature or whatever. You don't count on music, the Israeli-Palestinian one, although they are, what, 25% of the population already. So they just don't exist. But there is this problem, this threat that we have to, to tackle in order to defend what they call our defensive democracy. And so I shouldn't laugh, but the democracy bit, yes. you know, and, gets me. Um, Otherwise, we shall have another Auschwitz, another Treblinka. This is in the books. This is what I'm working on now, the Holocaust rhetoric of these books. Everything is to prevent another Treblinka or another Auschwitz. So from the age of three, I think you said, from the age of three it yeah. begins? Whether yeah. it's the, you know, so the propaganda starts at the age yes, of three. Yes, and also and Holocaust education. Yeah. I mean, on one hand, you traumatise them, yep. you traumatise them, you turn them into heterophobic human beings. They're afraid of anyone who is a foreigner, who is not Jewish. Because I see that in the in the kids' eyes. I can see it in the soldiers' yes. eyes. That's yes. exactly what I can yeah, see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everyone is anti-Semitic. And so on one hand, you have this horrible ho- Holocaust education, which is re-traumatizing every year. And this is starting from the age of three. It starts from the age of three now, yes. And on the other hand, you have this militaristic education, a military man coming to the kindergartens and uh, so on and so forth. And, you know, children are educated to be soldiers. This is it. Because they need to be protecting the... Yeah, they need to protect their land, to protect. And, and so they are constantly in panic. And they mix, you know, when you're six years old or five years old. The ancient Greeks, the ancient Romans, Pharaoh... The ancient Persian, the Arabs, the Nazis are all the same for them. They all the time want to exterminate us. All the time. You can imagine, you know, Ethiopian children who came yesterday and all this is imposed on them. They wet in their beds. They are terrible things. And, uh, so they're wetting their beds because of the education. Yes, yes. Around the Holocaust Day and Memorial Day and all this. Uh, I volunteer here in the what they call absorption center, which is a kind of a ghetto that they built for the Ethiopians. A horrible place. Uh, so uh, yeah, that's what the mothers say. They, they wet in their beds, and uh, I went to read books to the children once. So they brought me very nice children's books, and I asked the little girl, "What is it here?" So, this is a soldier. He coming to kill us. <laughs> you know, whatever. And one, one little boy... Because kids shouldn't be thinking this. One little boy told me the Arabs, they destroyed our temple and they drove us out of Egypt and they killed six Israelis in Germany, he said. Six, you know? <laughs> so it's all it's mixed up. It's a complete up. brainwash. It's a brainwash. It complete, is a complete, complete. It's a mind infection. Richard Dawkins talks about mind infection. It's much more than brainwash. I mean, they they grow up in panic, complete, constant, permanent panic. Wow. Um, oh. So, so when they, um, because I know that, so they don't get fairy tales. <laughs> they get butchering stories about how everyone's after us. Yes. And then all so, the time. So when they get into summer, every holiday is accompanied by another massacre that is told. Whatever holidays we have, okay? If it's Hanukkah, if it's a Purim, if it's, it's a Passover, it always has to be with some kind of massacre, some kind of extermination, some kind of, and God saved us. That was uh, Nurit Peled uh, and an interview recorded by Robert Martin. You're listening to Palestine, remembered on 855 AM. 
Uh, Nasser, uh, you also recorded uh, another great interview with another uh, Israeli visiting Australia. Tell us about yep. that. So we've been very fortunate in Australia to have Gideon Levy here from Haaretz newspaper. He um, was brought out by the Australian Friends of Palestine Association in South Australia to present the Edward Said Memorial Lecture, which he did uh, last Saturday. Um, and as well as that, they had a, a three-day BDS conference, which is our second BDS conference in Australia, which was fantastic. Um, he spoke uh, at the Edward Said Memorial Lecture. He was on Late Line, which we'll put a link on yeah. at the podcast, and uh, again at the State Library on Thursday, and he spoke to state parliamentarians on Thursday afternoon. Huge success. So, yeah, huge success. So um, well, here, here's some thoughts and perhaps a, a quick um, debrief on his actual speech that he gave on Thursday night. And uh, we will uh, put also parts of his speech in Melbourne uh, in future episodes. So you'll be listening to uh, Gideon Levy. Stay with us. And one of the things I wanted to ask you in the first instance is about your transformation from a good Tel Aviv boy to where you are today at the you know very edges, the fringes of uh, Israel's establishment and understanding of what is a good Jewish boy. It didn't happen one day. Many people ask me, was it how did you see the light or the darkness? It was an ongoing process of starting to go to the occupied territories and to open my eyes there. And it was really, um, from my point of view, a magnificent, amazing process, how gradually, gradually my eyes opened up and my mind opened up until I realized what I realized. And obviously I changed my views dramatically. And by the way, this process is still going on. Mm -hmm. Um, Yesterday you spoke about Israel's addiction to the occupation. And, and the fact that there's no cost. It's a, it's a cost-free occupation. Absolutely, absolutely. It's uh, one of the very few occupations in which I'm not sure that the occupier earns much out of it, but for sure he doesn't pay any price of it for it. And uh, this is a very good, very bad message because this means that the occupation will continue as long as the occupier doesn't pay anything for the occupation. It will continue forever. So being addicted, the analogy you used is, you know, we need to send it to rehab. You know, the carrots are not working. Absolutely, and this was my message also in my uh, lecture. Uh, As long as you let Israel enjoy the occupation, as long as Israel doesn't pay a price and is not being punished for the occupation, the occupation will continue. The occupier will continue to enjoy whatever he enjoys, Mm. and there is no incentive to put an end to the occupation. And one of the things that most, uh, I think, troubled you and, and certainly came across in, in, in your presentation was the, the, the way in which Israeli society has accepted it. You know, it's normal. There's no, no thought of, of the people living 20 kilometers away. Yeah, because there is a very, very efficient brainwash machinery which includes mainly the Israeli media, the Israeli education system, but above all, the Israeli media and the Israeli political sphere which teaches the people that um, we have no other choice, that occupation is part and parcel of our life and not such a bad part of our life, and there is no other alternative. We can, if we want to exist, we have to maintain the occupation. That's the only way to exist. And part and parcel in the indoctrination, you, you, you told us a story about the two dogs that were killed in uh, one of the Gaza wars, one uh, an Israeli dog inside Gaza, another one in Sredot. Yeah, it's just to 
demonstrate the dehumanization of the Palestinian Israeli media. It's quite an exceptional example, but still it should be told when those two dogs got front page coverage in the popular Israeli newspapers, uh, while tens of Palestinians who were go killed in the very same days hardly got any face, any names, any human face. Yeah, yeah. Um, one, one of Zionism's, you know, the great conundrum with Zionism is that it wants all of the land, wants to be Jewish, and it wants to be democratic. But the reality is you can only have two of the three. Land and Jewish, but not democratic. Democratic, Jewish, not all the land. Land and Jewish, and not democratic. What are our steps forward as an international solidarity movement? As I said, I think that the old discourse of speaking about the two-state solution, which was a very right goal, a very just goal, a very maybe even realistic goal, but I'm afraid we missed the train, and I'm afraid that this train will not get back to the station. If we realize this, we have to change the discourse, because you cannot continue to struggle yesterday's war or yesterday's struggle. And if you agree with me that nobody will evacuate 700,000 settlers, and I don't agree, there is no viable Palestinian state and no justice without evacuating all of them, all the 700,000, including in East Jerusalem, if we don't do it, we don't have a solution. We don't have justice or relatively justice. Therefore, we have to change the discourse and start to speak about the alternative, which is equal rights. And, and in that um, one state, we're talking, let's talk about the BDS movement, boycott, divestments and sanctions. And uh, you spoke about uh, particularly a, a, a moment in Israeli society within Israel when it was a cataclysm. And that was when the Austrian airlines, not the Australian airlines, cancelled flights into Tel Aviv. Right. I saw how the Israelis got crazy from closing the airport for maybe 24 hours. All the airlines followed Austrian airlines or most of the airlines follow the Austrian airlines, and only the Israeli airline continued to fly. And I saw that uh, it could be such an efficient, non-violent tool to put pressure on Israel. That's just a demonstration how pressure would work on Israel if it will be a real pressure in which Israelis will have to pay personally for the occupation. Because Israel craves that legitimacy, yeah? Um, today, the, the agents of the, the State of Israel, and whether they be uh, Jewish or Israeli lobbies, Jewish businessmen and women, and they're, uh, they're uh, using their I- I very efficient lobbying techniques, uh, laws are getting passed around the world, North America and Europe, to decriminalize, uh, to criminalize, excuse me, BDIS. Yeah, this is an unbelievable phenomenon, because boycott is a legitimate tool. Israel is calling the world to boycott Hamas, to boycott Iran. I mean, the world is putting sanction on Russia, putting sanction on, uh, on North Korea. I mean, it's a totally legitimate tool. How can it become a criminal step? I don't understand. But I think that by the end of the day, those laws only show the weakness of Israel and the Israeli case. Because if you need legislation in order to prevent sanctions then you are in a very bad shape. Mm-hmm. And Israeli society today, I mean, you're, you're, you're at the outlier and you talked about, you know, the gradual change from good Tel Aviv boy to where you are today. Where are you? Are you in the minority, vast minority, somewhat minority? Where, where are you today? 
No, I mean a total, total marginal minority, total marginal minority, but I can see the changes. The one-state solution, for example, couldn't be even mentioned one or two years ago. You hear more and more talking about it. First of all, the settlers talk about it, but they speak about the one apartheid state, yeah? But they speak about it, and we speak about it, few of us. It is slowly, very slowly, but surely becoming a legitimate argument. And, you know, those things will not happen one day. And many times, changes don't go in a linear way, you know, gradual, gradual, gradual. Many times, and you saw it in South Africa, there are very, very small changes, and all of a sudden, a huge change. Mm -hmm. And you never know when will it come. The tipping point. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and so from most of our listeners are uh, heavily involved in solidarity activism for, for Palestinian cause and justice for the Palestinians and Israelis. What, where do you think they should direct their energies? First of all, and above all, in two directions. One is to make more Australians and Australian politicians aware to what's going on just to make them know, because I think that the majority of Australians, including the majority of Australian politicians, know nothing, and what they know is wrong. Mm -hmm. They don't know the truth. Let's tell them the truth. And then, obviously, to put more and more pressure on your local politicians to change Australians' uh, attitudes, official attitudes, and any sign of solidarity with the Palestinians, any kind of aid, any kind of missions to Palestine are obviously very welcome. Fantastic. Edine Levy, thank you so much for joining us and uh, enjoy your stay in Australia. With this, uh, we've come to the end of this week's episode of Palestine. Remember, um, do not forget to tune in next Saturday, 9.30 in the morning. Until then, this is Nasser, Robert and Yusuf. Wishing you the best of time and salam. <laughs>